Hello everyone. My name is Hari Dilip Kumar and I am a member of the Smart Cities Working Group of the IIT Future Tech panel. Welcome to yet another episode of the IIT India Smart Cities podcast series. Today I have with me Smari Makati who is the founder of Ecosophy who is going to talk to us about climate resilient development in smart cities. Smari has spent most of his life being a public interest technologist in his own words and he has worked in areas where technology and society are colliding. He is a former member of Iceland's parliament and has worked in information security as chief technology officer of organized crime and corruption reporting project based in Sarajevo among other roles. He is currently the founder CEO of Ecosophy which is based in Iceland where he is building a platform that makes environmental data actionable. Smari, welcome to the IIT Smart Cities podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> so, my first question to you, Smari, is: What does climate resilient development mean for you, from your perspective? Yes. Well, okay. So, when people talk about the concept of resilience, it, it it's one of these slightly problematic terms because it means so many things in different contexts. Uh, you know, is resilience simply being able to weather a storm or or be able to handle some kind of unexpected event or is there something deeper involved in there and so when i think of climate resilience i'm trying to take the long view on that uh, not just saying uh, can we survive but also like do we uh, do we have enough to create the conditions to thrive and um, when we're looking at like the world right now humans have already demonstrated the ability to alter the operational parameters of our planet right which means that uh, you know we are changing its average temperature we're changing the distribution of water we're changing all sorts of factors that are key to the viability of the planet for life and now with the fight against climate change and the uh, attempts to to fix uh, all of the damage that we've done we're essentially trying to demonstrate the ability to alter it intentionally so on one hand climate resilience might be this idea of of making sure that you know flooding doesn't uh, harm people on a local level in some city or some uh, some village or or something like that uh, or you know or that you have some way of of dealing with uh, you know risk of crop failure in a nation state but on another level we might be talking about climate resilience in the more global context of saying okay what does it take for humanity to set operational parameters for the planet in such a way that we can um essentially make sure that everybody can thrive and of course that's a much harder thing to do but it's also a fair bit more interesting you know not to say that the other things are uninteresting i mean surviving is fundamentally an interesting thing to do but um but figuring out like this big engineering question of of you know how do we engineer uh spaceship earth so to speak into a a great condition for everybody and so you know you, it. it's a scale it's a scale dependent question got yeah. it got it so my key takeaway from that is that resilience is uh, you, you know it's it's you have different scales at which you can look at it and you have different uh, you know one way in which you're looking at it is like very contextual uh, what does resilience mean you know in this particular place it might mean like flooding safeguards or, or so on and so forth but the the bigger picture and the longer view which is something which you have been um sort of trying to follow is 
what does it mean on a global operational level when it comes to planetary boundaries and parameters like this exactly um, so so uh, that leads into my second question smari so uh, do you feel that climate resilience you know the the practical aspect of it is going to look different in the developed world or the so called global north and in the developing world which is the global south do you think that uh, the threats are going to be different do you think that uh, you know the localized building of resilience is going to be different and do you also feel that there needs to be some working together hand in hand for a planetary resilience which you have been talking about well so the easy answer to this is uh, it's going to look pretty much the same in terms of the threats uh, the and the types of scenarios that are going to be you know people are going to be faced with and obviously we're going to need some kind of coordination but there is definitely a matter of degrees you know in the global north there is a shall we say p- people have this belief in their uh, them having some kind of uh, built-in resilience due to Uh, simply higher development levels better infrastructure and so on but in reality a lot of it is just as fragile if not more fragile because um you know on the one hand we um like okay i'm sitting here in uh, Reykjavik Iceland where you know if the heating goes out or the electricity goes out for a significant amount of time then my life is going to get very very difficult very quickly and there isn't anything on the household level that i can do except just wrap up in a lot of uh, uh, you know blankets and such um and we've seen this a lot with uh, the uh, war in ukraine right now with the attacks that uh, russia has been making against energy energy infrastructure that you know generally speaking one of the you know as nice as it is to have big powerful energy infrastructure it turns out to be fairly fragile and whereas on the global south uh, you know again it's very difficult to uh, you know uh, talk about this thing because it's always like you know you have very radically different situ- situations in different countries but generally speaking uh, because uh all of the infrastructure is closer to the individual you have a built a bigger amount of built in uh resilience or or sustainability in a certain sense um so you know the the specific ways in which people react to climate change might be different from global north to global south or from one country to the next but oh, broadly anyway. speaking all of the same things apply in that like we're we're going to see uh extreme heating events uh we're going to see um water tables re- reducing we're going to see um you know landslides and avalanches and glac- glaciers receding and this leading to a shortage of water or an abundance of water in some places and so all of these different problems basically um you know they're going to have at least contextually similar uh responses even if the the personal infrastructure of the you know average person in in different places is going to be slightly different does Got that roughly make sense yeah yeah i mean so just to play it back to you what you're saying is that you know despite very high levels of human development and you know like a, a huge energy infrastructure the resilience in the global north might be Uh, still have fragilities or vulnerabilities in it which 
uh, you have you know you, you if the power goes out for some reason where you are then it's going to be very difficult for you to uh, you know adapt to the climate Iceland being a cold place and, yeah uh, you know well, what, uh, maybe maybe to add to that like uh, you know Iceland is only like uh, one or two shipments away from from being in in you know grave danger because you know we don't drill any oil out of the ground and we you know we grow a, a lot of food but not enough to sustain us so like uh, you know and if you look at any country's profile there's always going to be some kind of um, you know linchpin or weak points that that where everything can fall down so so and your point is that in different contexts there are going to be broadly the same kind of drivers in terms of for example extreme events from climate change so on and so forth although the contextual the scale of the contextual response might be different for example uh, the way you put it was uh, you know people in the global south are generally closer to their energy infrastructure which means that it's more localized and they're using local resources to um, you know provide their energy so yeah. they may they may even have more resilience in the face of uh, some particular events but that being said uh, you're seeing that the drivers are going to be broadly similar and the responses which might be different in scale and magnitude uh, are still going to be the same and nobody should assume that they are beyond vulnerability no matter where they are so uh, this this leads into my next questions mari so you know given that uh, you know the the problem of resilience is both uh, you know the same everywhere and very contextual uh you know how do you feel that i mean in your opinion what kind of platforms and technologies and engineering you know if you had a wish list would enable and accelerate climate resilient development both at the local level across the global north and global south as well as the planetary resilience which you have been talking about you know in terms of keeping um us ourselves on course for a stable climate and um resilience to a changing climate yeah and uh, this kind of comes back to what i was saying about uh humans now being in the phase of trying to demonstrate the ability to intentionally alter the operational parameters of our planet right uh and so uh, what is baked into that intentionality is you know it's a couple of things the first is um you cannot fix a problem if you cannot understand the problem right and so uh one of the things that we're using heavily uh throughout the scientific community and and so on is um you know using a lot of um sensors to measure the environment and a lot of uh predictive models to uh, try and um and get some kind of idea about the likely outcomes in into the future and so these are both meteorological models uh, and and climate models but also um uh, other specialized models for things like you know uh, like the the water levels of rivers the um you know different uh, crop outcomes and and all sorts of things like this so we're basically we need sensors and we need models and we need the sensors to be providing data in such a way that the models can be validated or rejected uh, on a fairly ongoing and uh, you know uh, up to date basis and so this is very like 
I can't stress enough how important uh, the ongoing basis aspect of this is because a lot of the climate models, for example, that people are relying on are such that it takes literally weeks to prepare a proper run of a climate model and then the model might run for days or weeks and then once you get the output it might take weeks or months to process it and if what you're trying to do is run a city or a country then you don't have that kind of lead time on making making decisions about your environment so uh, we need to make all of these models a lot faster um uh, but that, that's just the measuring the uh, the kind of scale and scope of the problems and being able to uh, predict and anticipate situations that are arising. The next thing that's, uh, that's really important is kind of a step beyond the smart cities, or rather step beyond the smart cities as a kind of information space and thinking of it more of an engineering space. Because... Um, once you have determined what needs to be done, you need to have a catalog of technologies and a set of tools with which to do it. And, you know, in some cases, what a city might need is, you know, to lower the risk of flooding from the river is to uh, plant more trees upstream or something like that. And so, you know, grow a forest. In some uh, situations, you might need to build a dam or, or a sluice or a spillway or something like that. And so just dependent on the different situations, there's a whole range of different technologies. But right now, uh, choosing which technology uh, applies at a, you know, a larger than, say, neighborhood level tends to get to be very complicated because it's, you know, it's very hard to analyze the, the engineering outcomes uh, on, on a grand scale especially in the face of climate change itself. So, you know, uh, you might have a an area where the maximum wind speed historically has never gone beyond, say, 30 meters a second. And, you know, suddenly you have, uh, due to heating in the environment and changes in the weather patterns, you might be seeing up to 50 meters a second in, in some cases, which is a very extreme wind. Um, how does this change, you know, uh, the the survivability of a forest how does this change the design of buildings you know all of these things and so being able to tap into some kind of global knowledge base about this kind of thing and match technologies to the appropriate uh, 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 settings or or physical parameters of your city or your space that's right. going to be very important on the on the back side of it and then just a third thing which is you know, there's you know for all of human history we've always been thinking about things locally thinking about things like what do i need to do to this field in order for it to give me a good crop what do i need to do in this uh, neighborhood to make sure that the water is clean and potable right and you know now we're suddenly in the situation where we need to not just be applying these technologies on a local city scale but also be uh, asking ourselves what is the net aggregate effect of all of these technologies working together across the entire planet 
right. right? You know, does this combination of technologies, if it runs for 50 years, does it lead to a heating event? Well, in the case of cars, yes, it does. Uh, you know, uh, is there something we can do to offset it? Is uh, can we decide collectively that this is a stopgap measure or things like that? And so, in in that sense, the third layer is. Uh, not just local introspectability into the technologies and the architecture, but also a global introspectability. And the final thing, the fourth and final thing, is once you have the ability to analyze the outcomes on a global scale and the local scale, and you have the ability to make local scale uh, appropriate technological interventions, you need some kind of global mechanism by which to make uh, determinations about what kind of global parameter set we need. And so this is thinking like maybe a hundred years into the future in some sense, but but uh, without having some kind of uh, global coordination mechanism, there's a risk that uh, say, you know, uh, the good people of uh, living in the the Sahel or the Sahara region decide that they are going to make their uh, you know uh, great green belt project expand to take up more of the Sahara, which leads to say a uh, a reduction in matter transference. So there's literally sand and nutrients being blown from the Sahara over to the Amazon basin every year that basically feeds the Amazon basin. And if there's too much forest in, in the Sahara or Sahel, that might lead to a, uh, a collapse of the Amazon basin in, in a certain extreme scenario. So, uh, so being able to make decisions about that on a global scale is going to matter more and more the better we get at, at managing uh, the planet. Got right? it, Mari. There's, there's so much um, you know, rich depth in what you've said. Uh, my... my understandings are that we have uh, you know sensors and modeling and uh, the second understanding which I got from you is that uh, the models are very difficult to use and we need all kinds of different models in order to uh, help us predict the effects of climate change adapt to it or you know even figure out uh, you know how good a particular adaptation is going to be does it have any unintended consequences and uh, another thing which I understood from you is that we need to start thinking in terms of uh, coordinated action which allows us to have a sort of planetary operating system which keeps us within the planetary boundaries and yeah. we need a way to aggregate the effects of individual interventions so that uh, you know we don't have uh, a long-term uh, you know spillover uh, when some particular decisions are taken regarding selections of technology and so on and so forth. So this is a very, uh, I, I would say this is a very deep vision which you have. And given that, uh, you know, where we are is, for example, you said the, the climate models are very difficult for people to use. Uh, do you feel that there are also other gaps in terms of technologies and a technology stack for a planetary operating system um, for example uh, you know maybe in understanding the system's dynamics of so many different contexts do you think there are gaps in our modeling or gaps in the the tech infrastructure which would be needed in order to 
move towards this vision? Absolutely. There there are huge gaps. And you know, if anything, I would say, you know, the generally speaking, the governments of the world have been failing so far in in uh, understanding the technology needs required for climate resilience. Uh, the only people who have been doing a absolutely fantastic job is the scientific community who have, uh, you know, for decades now been building uh, incredibly thorough, detailed, uh, you know, insightful um, climate models that, that deal with a whole range of different physical phenomena and, and try to capture all of the complexity that's happening both in the uh, Earth's atmosphere, its oceans, its uh, bio, biosphere and, and so on. But unfortunately, uh, one of the things that is true is that the scientific community has been doing this without a huge amount of support and you know uh, so you have scientists who are incredibly good at science but not necessarily the best software developers in the world uh, and they've been kind of putting these models together in ways that you know uh, anybody who's spent you know a couple of years in the computer games industry for instance you know, computer games being, you know, why, why is Mario talking about computer games now? Uh, computer games are essentially, you know, um, very similar to climate models in this really specific way. So a climate model is a high data volume or high data, high asset load, um, a, you know, complex simulation of, uh, you know, of some kind of, you know, situation. And most computer games are, you know, relatively high asset, uh, asset load simulations of some kind of situation with the added constraint that they have to be uh, delivered, you know, e every frame needs to be delivered in real time. And so the computer games industry has developed all these techniques for making simulations uh, significantly faster and, you know, uh, optimizing things so that there's a good user experience. And so, you know, <laughs> the, there's there's this big band gap between you know these fantastic climate models and then the the ability to use them in an engineering setting or in a decision making setting and oh, you know to speak nothing of all of the other situations where uh you know such as insurance or um you know uh, defense or you know things like that where you might want to be able to introspect things on some kind of level and we we just don't have it uh, you know uh, good enough to be able to say for instance uh how does the net outcome change if we uh change the direction of this river or if we you know plant a forest or if we you know build a new dam got right? it got it so so what you're saying is that uh these models uh, have been innovated by scientists over the decades and there's a fantastic job in terms of the availability of models for particular problems but there is some way to go before they hit the market and uh, that is there needs to be engineering in terms of high performance computing um, and uh, you know in order to make these more usable and more immediately applicable by people who uh, are not climate change researchers who, who don't have the time to spend weeks setting up the model so on and so forth right. and we already have a lot of tech from 
um, other aspects uh, you mentioned computer games which will help which we can leverage to build these kinds of models so i also have one uh, particular question which i would like your opinion on smari so uh, you mentioned that validating models is also part of the job of uh, leveraging these these this technology for climate resilience do you have yeah. any comments uh, you know the famous statement right all models are wrong but some are useful so yeah. uh, do you have any comments on you know the limits of predictive power of models and is there a systematic procedure to establish this uh, which which uh, you know can be engaged because uh, there there might also be the danger of maladaptations if the models have significant error bars and so on and so forth so do you have any opinions on this yeah well uh, so if, if anything uh, that that statement by george box the the idea of uh, you know all models are wrong but uh, some models are, are useful uh, you know the, the this this quote will be emblazoned on the wall once my my company has a, a office that <laughs> its name like because th- this is key to everything we're doing um reality is like yes um a, a lot of models are very useful <clears throat> and what we're seeing is both situations where um where the wrong models are being used and very often we're seeing uh simply the you know uh, excessively simplistic um uh, statistical methods being used for for things and and there's also a growing tendency uh which you know, i think is a little bit uh, problematic of um to to basically throw ai at any problem like just uh, you know hey we don't understand this thing let's just train a model and you know i mean realistically um you know great if you manage to train a model that's uh, capable of of uh, giving relatively good predictive outputs that's great but without some kind of uh, ability to introspect the model you have very little ability to analyze the failure modes or the you know situations in which that model is going to be um uh, going to be giving you horribly incorrect results right right and so, so- uh so you know uh, one thing i look to in all of this is you know uh, the old and somewhat um now kind of out of fashion ideas around cybernetics uh, you know the idea of um having uh, complex systems with uh, feedback the feedback loops so that they are adaptive and you know um so thinking about this as a not just a model that informs decisions but uh a model that informs decisions that get then sensed either locally or remotely that then get fed back into the models and you build this kind of uh you know feedback loop and the right, tighter right. that feedback loop is over space and time the greater a level of adaptability you have and the be- better ability you have to uh, start to react to situations that were unforeseen now again the models are going to be wrong right but at least this way you can you can shorten the path between uh making a bad decision and then fixing it right got it so so, uh, so, so my understanding is that you're certainly very aware of uh the uh you know the limited uh predictive power and in some cases misapplication of models which might occur and your suggestion for this is to uh, not rely exclusively on let's say deep neural structures which you can't introspect very easily but uh, to you know keep it as one pathway in 
um, a cybernetic system which has got feedback loops and which is probably stabilized to some uh, goals or objectives through negative feedback for example so an extremely yeah. interesting uh, sort of uh, <laughs> you know uh, way of thinking about it and the, the the thing to add there is you know the the old dictum that the purpose of a system is what it does right so in in the sense of like if you uh, if you look at like if you were an alien observing you know the the global industrial economy right you look at all of the cars all of the uh, plants all of the you know all of the things that we have that are uh, adding carbon to our atmosphere and you say what is this system for you wouldn't be entirely crazy to come up with the uh, assumption that that you know that the purpose of of all of these things is to increase the amount of co2 in in the earth's atmosphere right um but that's you know from our perspective that's not really the purpose the purpose of the car is to get between the purpose of the you know of the uh, power plant is to generate electricity so that we can make podcasts you know and <laughs> but you know we need to uh, get out of this tendency of always looking at things only at the scale at which it is most relevant to us and start thinking in this kind of more globalized way God. which in practice means understanding the the aggregate feedback effects of all of the things that are happening got it so this is uh, super interesting smari so the key takeaway is that multiscalar thinking is going to be very important in um, testing the consequences of any technologies or technology transitions as well um, i would just like to ask you since you've covered an incredible breadth of ideas here um, where are your own efforts with ecosophy and the platforms which you are building um, in terms of building climate resilience where are you um, at the in in terms of uh, work and uh, what are the most critical use cases which you, you feel uh, which you've been focusing on for example yeah well um, maybe put it like this i you know i I spent two terms in the Icelandic parliament and during my time there I kept trying to ask these pretty basic questions about uh, how well are we doing with climate change and the the more I asked and the more specific I asked the less good the answers were that I got and this kind of led me down this line of thinking that you know not only do we need a lot better uh, insight into uh, into what is happening uh, but also we need to start uh, treating it as a system of itself and so i i left politics and started this company with the idea of of trying to build at least one small aspect of this thing which is uh, currently like the the current focus of the company is just to bring together all of the data that the scientific community has already built already made already generated and just make it accessible and actionable by the people whose job it is to make decisions and you know that uh, in the short term is you know that's enough for uh, a lot of work to be done because you know the the tooling and the um the quality of the systems that allow for this are so uh bad at the moment right. but in the, in the long term uh i would like to be uh, going not just for the data analysis part and more into the action side of things and you know kind of starting to build the rest of the feedback loop 
and so we're doing that a little bit by like pulling in sensor data and things like that in addition to the the climate model data or you know the weird specialized databases that some experts in some fields need uh, but you know being able to uh, connect that back and you know start uh, understanding the specific effects of different actions that's where i'd like to go in the long term for the short term we're just doing the really simple thing of showing people the data that already exists and you know that uh that i think is uh a pretty good start you know amazing amazing so uh thank you so much smadi i think that's uh you know those are brilliant insights and it's it's great to see your long term plans with you know adaptive policy from an adaptive feedback loop for building resilience and uh, making the start with just making data available uh, so uh, thank you so much this brings us to the end of the podcast thank you so much for taking out the time and sharing your thoughts on this subject um, i'm sure this podcast is going to be super interesting and helpful for our listeners we're going to have many more such podcasts in the iit india smart cities podcast series so please stay tuned for more thank you and goodbye